If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We've been studying the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, which is followed by 400 years of silence until the appearance of the angel Gabriel, first to Zechariah and then to Mary. Last week, we looked at the passage that includes a section on tithing, and I think I need to correct or restate something that I said. Um, I think I may have said something to the effect that an offering was something you gave, but the tithe was something that you owed, that an offering showed an open heart and a willingness to share. And in the vein of what we hear in Second Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. In an interview I heard this past week, a book was mentioned entitled Duty and Delight, uh, Routley Remembered. Uh, Eric Routley was a famous hymnologist. And so I decided to look for the book on Amazon and I typed in Duty and Delight and came across several other books with similar titles. Uh, One was The Duty of Delight, The Diaries of Dorothy Day, someone who is known for her tireless work uh, and service among the poor. In her diary, among other things, she writes of her efforts to find God in all the tasks and encounters of daily life. Another book is John Piper's book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight, Daring to Make God Your Greatest Desire. And what these titles point to, in my opinion, is that duty and delight are not opposites. They're not dichotomies. They're not at opposite ends of the spectrum. We should not imagine, and I hope I have not given the impression, that duty is always a grind, if you wish, while delight is, well, delightful. Um, duty is seen as involving routine, whereas delight oftentimes is seen as spontaneous, natural, and maybe even wild. And certainly there are people who define these two words in that way. This is not the biblical way of looking at things. As human beings, we have duties. We are bound by time. There are daily duties, weekly duties, monthly, yearly duties. But can we, in fact, not delight in them? The example that comes to mind for me is the duty of faithfulness in marriage. And while it is a duty to be faithful to one's spouse, it is also a delight, or it should be. So it is in our giving to God which was not the case with Malachi's audience. They weren't even doing their duty, or doing their duty rather badly, and they were certainly not marked by any kind of delight in their worship of God. Having said all that, as I did last week, this is not the point of the passage. The passage is not about giving. The passage is, in fact, about the reality of who God is. In verse number 6 of chapter 3, that God does not change. He is just, verses 1 through 6, And he is faithful, which we saw last week in verses 7 through 12. And while our circumstances may tell us, may in fact scream at us, that this is not the case, that God is not just, that God is not faithful, um, we should anchor our faith and our hope in him and his character. What we find in Malachi's audience, I think beginning from the, at the beginning of the book and through to the end, is a sense that God owes them, but they owe God nothing. He has to keep his promises, but they don't have to live up to the terms of the covenant. And therefore they are brash, they are rash, they are reckless in their charges, their challenges against God. And really, 
it's quite astounding considering how tepid they were in their worship of God, how unfaithful they were. Somehow it's really striking that they were so demanding and almost felt like they were better than God that they could sit in a higher, from a higher moral position and judge God and tell him he needed to do better than what he was doing. We hear brash words at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied God with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? And again, we hear these hard words, similar hard words, in verse number 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? The problem I think we find is rather than looking at themselves and looking in the mirror and examining themselves, they feel very free at sort of wagging their finger at God and telling him that he hasn't done what he should do. Now we come to the last section of the book of Malachi and we hear a call to take inventory. We are given things to think about. Malachi's audience is. We should do so as well. And for the first time in this book, we are told that there are actually two groups of people within Israel. Those who are arrogant, those who are proud and complain against God. But then we do have a group of people who are known as those who fear the Lord. Um, We might have thought, reading Malachi up to this point, that all of Israel had turned away from the Lord. But we, in fact, find that there's a remnant. And this is a theme throughout the prophetic writings that in the people of God you have a group of people who in fact are doing what they should be doing and who fear the Lord. If you look at the, ver- the end of chapter uh, 3, we'll read this in a minute, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So here as we come to the end of Malachi, the three questions. The first question is, is it vain to serve the Lord? The give-and-take format uh, continues, a, a conversational model. Let's begin reading in verse number 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Once again, the skeptics, these proud, arrogant people, have offended God with their words. Their words are strong, they are impudent, and they are rather presumptuous. These people are overly bold. How dare they speak to God this way? Well, they're very quite confident that they're in the right and God is in the wrong. The Lord, in his faithfulness, has challenged his people. We saw this last week. And has made promises to bless them. Verse number 10, test me says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. But the skeptics reply, in essence, the wicked have tested and proven that God, in fact, is a liar. That God does not keep his promises. 
The wicked, not themselves, obviously it's those Gentiles, those sinners, they sin and God has done nothing about it. He threatens and he is either unwilling or unable to to live up, to carry out his threats. So we must conclude, verse number 15, that we will call the arrogant blessed and we will say that the evildoers prosper and those who challenge God will escape. What we hear here is insolence from these people. You're reminded of the, the thing about the speck in your neighbor's eye and the plank in your own. With these people somehow seem to think that God is really, really at fault and they have done nothing wrong. What we find in this, this first question here, these insolent people, are three offenses. Their method, their attitude, and their words. The method may not be obvious to us, but in essence, they do not enter into a dialogue with God, but they have a conversation among themselves, which is different. Uh, It's a different conversation than what we see in verse number 16 among those who fear the Lord. And rather than directing their complaint to God, as we see Jeremiah doing, Job, Asaph, and others in scripture, um, they talk among themselves. They talk among themselves. They converse and essentially come up with a new theology that God blesses wicked people, but he really doesn't bless those who are good. They see themselves as good and as righteous. I think this comes under the heading of questioning God, which we looked at several weeks ago. And it fits in with what James tells us in James chapter 1 about being double-minded. A double-minded person is a person who has faith, who trusts in God. And at the same time, there is unbelief. There is a question, why has God allowed such a thing to happen? Faith is a confidence in his character. Unbelief is a failure to believe. And I think it is possible as those who question God in faith to be in doubt. That is, we believe that God is who he says he is. But boy, we don't know what is going on with a particular situation. Why hasn't God done anything? So we're of two minds. But that's infinitely better than to be in one mind, and that is complete unbelief. These people do not believe that God is who he says he is. They have created a theology in which he's the bad guy, and they are the good people. The skeptics are not double-minded. Both feet are firmly planted in unbelief. They do not believe God based on their experiences. God says something, but what has happened in their lives says the opposite, and they choose to believe their experience and develop a theology of experience rather than listening to what God says. Their attitude is seen in their words. They make three bold assertions. One should tremble to make such an assertion. There is no use in serving God. There is no profit in observing the commands of the Lord. And there is no profit in fasting or repenting. Consider what they say. That service to God is useless. It is worth nothing. The word that, they, that is used here is futile in the NIV. It's the same word that is found in the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In futility. It's the same word. So the skeptics essentially agree that all service to God is unreal, it has no value, it has no worth. 
if you in fact obey God, you're wasting your time. You will not get anything out of it. Also, observing God's commandments results in no profit to the observer. There's no pay, there's no increase, there's no observable return. You don't get anything good back from obeying God. Whether it be materially or politically, because remember, they're under the the Persians at this point, and things are not going well with them economically, and they are still under a foreign power. Yeah, you obey God's commands, that's not going to change. So there is no use, there is no profit. And there's nothing to be gained from repentance and mourning. And this is implied in the idea of going about mourning. Um, Implied in this idea is that there's nothing truly worth mourning or repenting over. They are not guilty in their minds of any great sin. So why has God not blessed them? Why should they mourn? All three of these assertions, by the way, are very mercenary, uh, have a very strong economic tone to them. There's no value, there's no profit, there's nothing to gain. So we shouldn't be surprised at what they conclude in verse number 15. But now we call the arrogant blessed, certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Here they challenge what we are told in verse number 10. God tells them that he will pour out so much blessing on them that they won't have enough room for it. No, 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 they say. This is not the case. It is the arrogant who are blessed, the evildoers who prosper. It is those who challenge God who get away with whatever it is they want to get away with. Um, A friend of mine lent me a book this week, um, something I've read a lot about, about the Bataan Death March and then the, the, the prison camps and just horrible, horrible conditions. Um, I told you at one point I had to just put the book away because it's just overwhelming, the misery and the suffering. But I came across a a part in which uh, one man said that different prisoners were praying out loud and saying, oh God, why is this happening to us? I haven't done anything wrong. Um, Now, I can't imagine what they went through. But if we suffer anything at all, we should not say, I'm clean. This shouldn't happen to me. Um, And these people, you know, when they talk about the arrogant and the evildoers, that's them, but they don't even realize it. They're so busy pointing the finger at someone else, they don't even realize their own failures. But there are other people. There is, in fact, another group in Israel. While this conversation is going on, this new theology is being developed over here, you have those who are faithful to what God has revealed. We have people in Israel who value the name, the reputation, and the person of the living God. By the way, Becca would probably notice this more than anyone, there's a shift from second person to third person. And whenever you have that shift in in literature, something's going on. Um, there's no more a conversation, a dialogue. Rather, God is speaking about a particular group of people. And twice these people, in one verse, are described as those who feared the Lord. The fact that it's repeated, again, in literature, you don't repeat just for the sake of repeating. It's to draw your attention to it, that this is important. We've considered the matter just this past year, of the fear of the Lord. It's a theme found throughout scripture. It is a fear that is peculiar to the people of God. It is the fear of veneration of honor and of uh, fear 
of, I'm sorry, of honor and of awe. It is reverence. It is reverence for God. And we are told more than once in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These people talked with one another. They had a conversation. And we are told, and the Lord listened and heard. It's an astounding statement. That the Lord listens and hears a conversation you have with another believer about the Lord and his workings in your life. Even though life may not be going the way you think that it should, I think should be of great comfort to us. In a real sense, yes, God hears all conversations. He listens to all conversations. But the conversations among those who fear him are precious. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. The language here is a reminder that God does not forget. There's more. Two promises are added. They will be mine and they will be a treasured possession. It's just wonderful things to hear. To know that you belong to God. And more than that, that you are a treasured possession. It should, again, bring us great comfort and peace. While we may delight in these promises, we should remember what has been said by the skeptics several times in the book, that God rewards the evildoers and the wicked. No, this is not the case. Those who fear the Lord are his treasured possession. The skeptics have gotten it all wrong. They're 180 degrees. They're, they're just wrong. So are we surprised? We shouldn't be. Because they aren't in belief and unbelief. They're not questioning God. They're not doubting. They are fully, both feet, in unbelief. And therefore, they don't fear God. They have no wisdom. They do not see things as they should. And verse number 18 just makes this very clear to us in case we didn't get it. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. By the way, one of the great promises regarding the new covenant is found in Jeremiah 32. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Either you fear God or you don't. And if you don't fear God, then you know what? You're going to say all kinds of weird things. Like God prefers the wicked to the righteous. The second question uh, piggybacks off of this. It's now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We've just been told that there's a distinction between these two groups of people. Um, one of, there will be an event that will happen, actually a series of events, I would argue, that will in fact make this distinction very clear. And that is the day of the Lord. Look at verse number one. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming. That day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise up with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. All of this to say is there is coming a time when the distinction will be made very clear. 
between those who are wicked and those who are righteous, those who are God's people and those who are not. The destiny of the proud and the arrogant is found in verse number one. The Lord, in fact, is going to come because at this point they don't think he will because, well, he hasn't and their lives are miserable and and they're unhappy about it. Well, that day when he comes will be one of consuming fire. By the way, this consuming fire is not simply an Old Testament thing. We hear it in the New Testament as well. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God is just. I find it interesting. This is what we heard in Malachi 3. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This includes you, Paul writes, because you believed our testimony to you. At least two things came to mind as I was going through this. The first is how hard it is for me, and I don't know about you, to acknowledge that the God we worship will in fact do such things. We believe that God is love. We believe that he's also just. Yeah, but this this fire business just seems a bit much. But then we need to look at the reality that God has in the fact, in the past, in, if you wish, many versions of the day of the Lord, demonstrated his wrath against people. We find this in the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jerusalem itself, and not simply in B.C., but what happened in 70 A.D. as well. These have been days of the Lord in which the wicked and evildoers have been punished. But they don't exhaust the meaning of the coming day of the Lord, which will happen at the end of time. The future will be the final reveal, if you wish, when Jesus comes back with his angels and blazing fire. And then there will be the great revelation of those who are his people and those who are not. What about the righteous? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we would say that as with the wicked, so with the righteous. That is, there is a sense in which presently we see them as the people of God, but certainly in the future, in the future day of the Lord, they will be revealed for who they are, that they belong to God. We saw this in the series on, on creation, that everything is the telos. It's all pointing to the new creation when the Lord Jesus returns, and then things will be revealed. You'll notice, by the way, the, the phrase here, the son of righteousness, Some people say this refers to the Messiah. I think that it does. And by the way, in uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it's there, Son of Righteousness. But we certainly wouldn't want to develop a theology based on a hymn. Um, Zechariah, you remember, was made mute because he questioned Gabriel. And then on the day that John was circumcised and he was named John, his mouth, he was allowed to speak. And a part of what he said is, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, speaking of the Messiah, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. There is a real sense in which in this life, those who are God's people will experience joy 
will run and leap like calves that have been released from the stall. Can you just picture calves that have been maybe uh, in the barn all winter because of the snow, because of the coldness, and then at a certain point in spring, the farmer opens up the doors and they go out and they're just jumping around. This is the joy that belongs to God's people. In the end of time, justice will be done. There will be justice. Then the last question, and this is how the Old Testament ends. So I think something worth considering. And the question is, are there no guides, are there no guidelines for righteousness? Do we know, are we told how we are supposed to live? Look, if you would, at verses 4, 5, and 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, the day in which things are revealed. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. These are the last verses of Malachi, the last verses of the Old Testament. And the question that the skeptics seem to ask is, is there a standard? Are we told how we're supposed to behave? Well, obviously there is, because they keep talking about the fact that God blesses the evildoers. So obviously they think that there is a standard, but they, I think, are mistaken because they have set up their own standard rather than looking to God's standard. Those who are supposedly God's people are having a difficult time. Why is this? We're good people. Why are we having such a difficult time? Are there guidelines? Well, there are two yeses that are given here. The first one is that the law was given to Moses. That's verse number four. Those of you in Malachi's day who have forgotten, yeah, remember Horeb at Sinai, I gave the law to Moses. This is how you're supposed to live. Um, Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how others may be doing, you are supposed to obey the law of God. So there is that. But then we also have the prophets. And here specifically the prophet Elijah. What we see in verse 5 is very similar to what we saw in verse number 1 of chapter 3. That is, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. There's the matter of preparing the way. But what about the message? What about What is it that Elijah will say? What is the message of the prophets? Well, John the Baptist was Elijah. He was the one that God sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just stop and think about it. To repent means you're doing something wrong or you're failing to do what is right. That must mean that there is a standard somewhere that says these are the things to do and these are the things not to do. And you've been breaking both of them, so you need to repent. You need to turn away from that. There it is. There is, in fact, a standard for behavior. So what John tells his listeners... I think Malachi is telling his listeners as well, there is a standard. Moses gave it to you at Sinai, and whenever the prophets preach, they don't make stuff up in their own head. They're just like, what can I preach about? They preach the law of God. You need to stop what you're doing that is wrong and return to the law of God. The skeptics should know this. They claim to be the people of God, and yet they have completely ignored the law of God. And Because of this, if they don't get their act together, if they don't in fact repent, 
we are told, God says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now we need to be careful with the word curse because we've talked of the binary thing, the blessing and cursing. But as one writer put it, the word curse here is a very delicate word. It isn't sort of that hammer type of thing we expect. It's a word that is used, well, let's do the opposite. In Israel, there are things that were dedicated to God voluntarily. That you had maybe an animal or some type of offering, and you voluntarily dedicated it to God. Uh, Hannah does this with her son Samuel. She dedicates him to God. On the other hand, and this is where the curse comes in, where things are involuntarily dedicated to God. And the example that comes to mind is Jericho. Do you remember the story, how they were to march around the city? But instructions were given, do not, do not take anything because this has been dedicated to God. In other words, it's been cursed. And it's not just at Jericho, other places, Israel is told, this has been dedicated to God. So what Malachi, what God through Malachi is saying, if you don't obey me, Moses gave you the law, the prophets have been calling you to repent, then you will end up like Canaan. You will be involuntarily dedicated to God. And that's not a good thing. These skeptics, these arrogant people who think they know so much that they're better than God, that somehow God has failed them. Yeah, you, you want to be like Jericho? You want to be like Jericho? Is that what you want? The message to the Jewish community is you need to repent. You need to follow what is found in God's law or you will end up like Jericho. The interesting and perhaps puzzling part in this day and age is what the prophets will do is to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Different and various interpretations have been given on this. I think the simplest is probably the correct one and that is there will be generational reconciliation. That in fact, fathers and children, parents and children, and grandchildren and so on down, together will serve God. It won't be some like a one generation thing and then the kids won't follow or the grandkids won't follow. But in fact, they will be reconciled to each other and by the grace of God will serve God. In an age where faith is seen as individualistic and Jesus is seen as my own personal savior rather than the savior of the world, the head of the church. Um, these words, I think, sound very strange to us. They don't seem to ring true. But remember that Malachi is speaking to the people at that time. Together they are to be the Lord's people, parents and children alike. And such, such reconciliation would be a sign of a turning to God. So here we are. We have looked at Ezra, Haggai, Nehemiah, and now Malachi four books written relatively within the same period of time, within 50 years of each other. And here at the end of Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, there's the call to take inventory. We need to ask ourselves, is it vain? Is it futile? Is it worthless? Do we not gain anything by serving God? Is there no difference between the wicked and the righteous? And are there no guidelines for how we are supposed to act? The Jews would have 400 years, four centuries, to ponder these questions until the word of the Lord would be heard again. And when they heard the word of the Lord again, what was it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And Jesus, the Word, comes and tells us the good news. The connections between Malachi and the New Testament, I think, are stronger uh, than uh, I had imagined, than we might imagine as we read it. I'm struck by the fact that the two individuals mentioned here at the end, Moses and Elijah, and when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was there with him? Moses and Elijah. Um, The son of righteousness, the messenger who is going beforehand to prepare the way, it's there. It's going to stretch over 400 years, but it's still there. God calling his people to live as they should. When Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do they talk about with Jesus? Luke tells us in Luke 9, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about the fact that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and there he would be put to death. You see, what Israel failed to do in obeying God, Jesus did. He obeyed God completely and perfectly. And as a result, we have life through him. Let's pray together. Our Father living when and where we do, we tend to be very pragmatic, almost mercenary in almost everything we do. We want to know if it works and we want to know if it is profitable. What is to be gained by doing something? And while I think we would in this congregation agree that you have been more than generous to us, so gracious, so giving, you have in what the way most people think, you have blessed us. But there are times when we may question, when we may wonder. We wonder if it's worth it. What do we gain? Are we better off by serving you? I thank you for Malachi and his message. In some ways, the brutality of it as he exposes arrogance and insolence people who think they know better than God, who sit in moral judgment against God. But there are those who fear him, who know that you are the Lord God Almighty. There's so much in this book, and I thank you for the time we've had to go through it and study it. May your spirit call to our mind things from time to time. May we meditate on them. And may we be filled with gratitude because of your great love for us. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We do, again, remember Laura's family this time of loss, that you would comfort them, draw them to yourself. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk in the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.